Hi, I'm Michaela McGuack-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. This special event, hosted in partnership with the Planning Institute of Australia, examines the increasingly complex debates surrounding water security and asks whether and how inland cities can ever achieve true urban resilience. We'll hear from Professor Barbara Norman, the Director of Canberra Urban and Regional Futures, Danielle Francis, the Manager of Policy and Strategy at Water Services Australia, Dr. Jason Alexandra from the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, and Dr. Danswell Stars, the Monitoring and Modelling Manager at ACT Government. But first, I'll let Professor Nicole Gurren introduce our Chair, Dr. Maxine Cooper, the Deputy Chair of the National Landcare Network. Before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners on the land on which we meet, the Naganawal and Nagambri people. And I pay my respects to um, the traditional elders past, present and emerging. Um, I also pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where the University of Sydney's um, campuses are built. I note that many universities and schools and academic units, including my own School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney, have issued strong statements of support for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. And I want to acknowledge and thank all First Nations uh, leaders for their efforts during this important time. Um, Much of their work has been carried out at great uh, personal cost to themselves as well. And given the subject of today's event, I also think it's appropriate as part of the acknowledgement of country to recognise the traditional water knowledge and to recognise that that traditional water knowledge in this country extends back for millennia along with traditions of Indigenous water resource management prior to colonisation. In the words of Dr Virginia Marshall, ANU's inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow, Aboriginal water concepts are central to community and kinship relationships to country. And she contrasts these with Western legal concepts and indeed urban and regional planning concepts that separate water and land. Dr Marshall writes in her 2019 article that we should empower First Nations people to take a pivotal, even primary, role in caring for country, explaining how water landscapes hold meaning and purpose under Aboriginal laws, laws which are integral to maintaining a healthy environment and community wellbeing. And of course, having said that, um, it is now my great pleasure to welcome you to this event this afternoon. 
It's an event, the very last event in a wonderful festival of urbanism um, organised by the Henry Halloran Research Trust, which, as I said, I direct. That is a cross-university research centre that is dedicated to bringing together the different bodies of knowledge across the university and beyond to look at issues facing cities regional uh, and regional um, areas and land and land management. We do that by supporting research but also importantly supporting dialogue between university-based researchers, industry leaders, policy leaders in government and in the community as well as in conversation with the wider public and that's very much the spirit in which the Festival of Urbanism 10 years ago um, began as an independent um, opportunity for all of those groups to come together and share knowledge and dialogue around you know issues affecting cities and regions. Uh, this year, for the first time, we introduced a national element to the Festival of Urbanism and this Canberra event wraps up a series of events in Hobart, Perth, Melbourne, the Northern Rivers and now here in Canberra. And each of those events dealt with issues and drew on local experts and local leaders and organisations. And I call out here the Planning Institute of Australia, which we're um, holding this um, event in partnership with today, which believes very much, as do we, in the importance of having conversations about urbanism and about regional planning beyond the major cities, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, which tend to dominate uh, the national conversation. And uh, so this final event in Canberra really sums up the sort of ethos of the Festival of Urbanism, but particularly the Festival of Urbanism Australia, which looks at issues that are integral to local and regional communities, but which have much wider national and indeed international significance. This year's festival theme has been contested urbanism. And actually, I think water policy and water security and, of course, climate resilience, the themes of today's panels are really strike at the heart of some of the most contested and, of course, existential questions facing the national capital, facing other inland cities in Australia, but, of course, also facing, you know, our entire, um, you know, urban, urban settlement um, across the country. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing from our panel of very distinguished speakers and in handing over to the chair of today's event, uh, Dr Maxine Cooper. And before I do hand over to her, I want to give you a sense of her very impressive biography. Dr Cooper is the independent chair of the ACT and Regional Catchment Coordinator Group, independent chair, and I'm going to have to read this biography fast because it's impressive and it's it's long and I've abbreviated it, but it's important. Uh, chair of the Landcare ACT Board and Deputy Chair National Landcare Network. She's a fellow of the Planning Institute of Australia and the Environment Institute of Australia and New Zealand and adjunct professor at the University of Canberra as well as being a Fulbright Fellow 
and a Commonwealth Scholarship holder of Canada. Much of her work has involved matters related to water policies and management, which she's managed to weave across her various professional roles, which include being the Auditor General of the ACT, the ACT Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment, and before that, the Head of ACT Water Security Task Force. She's also held many other professional senior executive positions across the ACT and New South Wales Government's as well as Brisbane City Council with responsibilities for environmental planning, land and resource management, parks planning and management, urban and regional planning, transport planning, sustainability planning and much more. And her academic qualifications are too numerous to list. So I'm very delighted to hand over to Maxine to guide us through this important conversation. Thank you, Nicole, and Yuma, everybody. So hello, and I'm privileged to be here on Nunawal land, where traditional ways of knowledge sharing, managing lands and water, as we know, have taken place for thousands of years. And I give my respect to all traditional custodians, their connection, and I respect their connection to and care of our land, water, and the culture that they share now with us. And I acknowledge they have never ceded sovereignty. Okay, to start off with, the image I'd like to share with you is twofold. One, it depicts the SDGs, um, something my colleague Barbara introduced me to and I've always looked at as fundamental to decision making. But I've also put this up because it's the work of Wiradjuri artist Jordana Angus and it shows the 17 SDGs. And whether it was intentional or not, she cushions what I consider operational STGs between two key components that make everything possible, partnerships and governance. Um, and for me, um, this is fundamental to the topic of today. And the next image I share with you, um, this one as a reminder that the same landscape can be seen in very different ways and that water security and building urban resilience needs to be grounded in cultural and environmental considerations as well as the social and economic that sometimes dominate our conversations. Here Richie Allen, a Ngunnawal Kamilaroi custodian, shows the mighty Murrumbidgee which in Wiradjuri language is called big water. This big water is an important, strong part of the landscape, and you can see it on the right of that image, that connects places and people. It's important in the ACT region, and this upper Murrumbidgee River at the moment, many of us consider no longer mighty, and yet it's fundamental to our region for water security. You will hear more on this from Dr Danswell Stars, who will be our next speaker, um, he'll talk about the health of this river and all its values. I will just mention this because um, Dan will mention it in more detail, but I want to give you a picture of where um, our water security context is, and it's really in the upper Murrumbidgee. This is the region in which we live. I won't go into details. It's very impressive. Also, we are part of the Murray-Darling Basin, um, and yet the policies that apply to our mighty river um, are not the same that apply to other rivers in the basin. And why is this so? It is so because our river um, is subjugated to the needs of the Snowy Hydro Scheme, um, something I think that will come up today. Um, and challenges and opportunities. Okay, water security is a challenge in and of itself and building resilience is. 
But it's especially so in our region where I think in some of the conversation today we will hear we are very vulnerable to the climate change risks in terms of our water runoff. We need to think how we approach things as we can no longer make predictions based on our past trends. We need to consider the vulnerabilities and design accordingly, a complete mind shift in how we plan. And at the same time, we've got this growing population. So how do we match the two? Yet the governance for doing this is fragmented, complex, with jurisdictional overlap, competing priorities and historical legal arrangements. However, we are fortunate in this region where there are many partnerships and these create formal and informal webs which are critical. They bring governments, communities and non-governments together. And one of those which was mentioned by Nicole is I chair the ACT and Region Catchment Management Coordination Group. And it's a group that takes in um, all of the region as well as the ACT government and New South Wales government. And the group's remit facilitates it advocating for better policies and practices. And to this end, uh, following on from Nicole, I would like to mention one particular activity, and that is it supports Aboriginal waterways assessments, which are led by First Nations people and undertaken completely by First Nations people. These assessments capture the Ngunnawal Nation's experience and cultural knowledge and express their water planning aspirations for country. They are important foundation for advocating for better management practices for the care and management of country and ultimately securing cultural flows and water justice for the Ngunnawal Nation. Okay, I'm just going to take you back um, very short in history, and I can see someone smiling up there who knows where these images came from, to reinforce the importance um, of the conversations we're having. Just a few years ago, just a few years ago, 2019-20, just go back and feel what it was like. It was an absolute shocker of a time. Uh, we're in drought, had a powerful storm with hail that caused extensive damage, and had a huge bushfire that burned over 80% of the park. That's the ACT and its region. That's what we're like. Okay, water was on our minds, especially for residents of Thawa who draw water from the upper Murrumbidgee, um, which, as you can see in this photo, in 2019-20, stopped flowing. The upper Murrumbidgee River is considered to be an important part of the overall water security for Canberra and its region. It's the planned third line of defence after Cotter Gugong dams for sourcing water in extreme circumstances. What a statement. So why did this occur? Our changing climate, yes, one reason, not the only one. However, a significant reason is because of historical policies, including those that give support to over 90% of the natural flows of the river, the upper Murrumbidgee River being diverted to Tangtangra Dam for Snowy Hydro. And the graph shows the effect of the diversion. And I think, Dan, you've got that graph and he'll talk more about it. But a complete drop and then go to the right and you'll see what happens um, in 2019-20. It really hits rock bottom. For security reasons, we need to change some historical policies we've inherited and advance policies to achieve a sustainable river system that protects your cultural, environmental, economic and community values, provides water security for the ACT and region and generates renewable hydro energy. An easy ask, eh? But we can do it, I think. Now, going to the urban area, and I won't dwell long on this, um, we do have a new ACT office of water, which I think we should celebrate big time. Um, and there, 
um, reviewing their strategies. In one of their strategies, we've got a report that says, well, where's Canberra in the water sensitive cities index? And as you can see, we're not doing too well. Um, and here in 2019, we thought we were doing pretty well on water supply at 100%, but maybe that was looked at just before there was a bit of uh, mild panic about whether we were going to go into water restrictions or not. So we're not. Do so I put that up as a bit of a benchmark. It's from the CRC for water sensitive cities. We need some beacon, some plan to go forward, and I think water sensitive city is certainly a direction we should head in. But open for the conversation on that. So today we have fantastic speakers um, and a panel. And I just want to say all of these speakers are fostering practices for shaping tomorrow to be more sustainable. Um, this is important as we all know the future is not just somewhere we get a map and go, it's something we actually create and we do it with our head, heart and hand and that's something um, all of the people I'm working with in the space of water, water security, urban planning know. So to lead off... Um, Today, I will invite Dr. Danswell Stars, who was named after Danswell Creek. So no wonder he's ended up in the water space. Um, he's currently Water Science Monitoring and Modelling Manager in the new ACT Government Office of Water. He's got extensive experience in a range of, of issues across um, our basin, as well as in other basins. He's I've got a wide range of traditional and innovative skills. He works on topics not only related to water issues, but grassland ecology. He's focused on European carp control and amphibian ecology. His current role involves developing and implementing water monitoring programs, catchment modelling to support decision-making, data management and curation, and the development of business intelligent tools. All this together with a decision support system for, sorry, all this together will become a decision support system for water management in the ACT and region. Something we've never had before, we've never had the Office of Water, and are we in exciting times on this? Dan's depth of knowledge of this catchment is second to none. So I'm going to hand it over to Dan to give us the context in which our urban environments exist. Dan. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the lands of the Ngunnawal people. And I'd like to pay my respect to the Ngunnawal people and any other families and groups that uh, have a connected interest to the lands on which we meet today. So yes, my name's Danswell, unusual name, named after Danswell Creek, which is uh, this picture of this tiny little stream here, which you can find in the top of the Breadbow River catchment. I like to think of this as being on the outskirts of the Murray-Darling Basin. This is one of the areas where the flows first originate. This is one of the very first order streams. I grew up paddling around in that creek as a very little kid, looking for yabbies, chasing little native fish, and eventually for my eighth birthday I got a fishing rod and I started to fish for trout. And that's kind of where my, my love of water came from. And since then I've been lucky enough to, to study and undertake research and monitoring activities on a whole range of aquatic ecology type matters. So my background is I'm an aquatic ecologist and I've done much of my work here in the ACT region, which is very much my home. So to set the scene today, so where is Canberra? Where are we? We are in the upper Murrumbidgee River catchment, what is euphemistically called the unregulated Murrumbidgee River. And we'll talk a bit about that. 
So the Murrumbidgee River, if you can see my laser pointer here, starts in this area up here, the northern Kosciuszko. Think of this as those open grassland plains, long plain, open grassy areas like this, swift flowing, cool cobble bottom stream where amazing exotic, well, amazing, interesting species live. They're not exotic, they're native. Things like the, the galaxus, the little native fish, the stocky galaxus, and northern crabby frog. Really amazing animals. This is in a national park. Fantastic, well managed, but it has its issues. Think feral horses, degrading this ecosystem, weeds and climate change. This area is one of the most productive in southeastern Australia from a rainfall perspective. Rainfall gauges here can receive upwards of 2,000 millimetres of rainfall a year. Not significant and maybe in the wet tropics of Queensland, but in this part of the world, that's a lot of rain. And it means that this is, in terms of the Murray-Darling Basin, this is where the water originates from. The Alps, this high country, is where it comes from. A large proportion of it falls as snow, and so you have classic snowmelt flows where come late winter, spring, into early summer, you get large movement of water through the system, and the ecology of the system is built around that. The species respond to these natural pulses of flow through the system. That's all well and good, but then you hit this structure here. This is Tantangra Dam. This is built as part of the Snowy Hydro Scheme, opened in 1964, and it cuts the headwaters of the Murrumbidgee River and diverts that water to Yukonbeen Dam to supply Snowy Hydro Scheme, diverts that water for the purposes of hydroelectric generation. A really important thing, not something to be discredited, and, but we must recognise that it has a degree of impacts. Historically, upwards of 99% of the flows of the river were diverted out of the catchment. Nowadays, it's thought to be between 90 and 95. But it's a fairly significant impact on the river. At the time this was done, there was no real consideration given to what are the impacts downstream? What about the species, the ecology of that river system, and also the possible values that others have, cultural values, economic values, and things like you know, Canberra as a city. If we move downstream below Tantangra, we move into New South Wales, the upper part of Murrumbidgee, which is fundamentally an agricultural system. The agricultural system here, you have the significant irrigation area within the upper Murrumbidgee. It's not significant in the overall scheme of the Murray-Darling Basin, but this is where we have irrigation. And they draw water from this river for irrigating. You can also see there are some other issues. The riparian zone is largely cleared, and the species of tree you see there are all exotic. And some of those are really, really good at pulling lots and lots of water out of the river and evaporating it, and that greatly reduces the stream flow. You also have issues with uh, irrigation and runoff, sorry, not irrigation, erosion, and then you get runoff that takes the water in, and hence it has this brown color. Naturally, it would not have been a brown river. This was a clear cobble bottom river, clear flowing water, high oxygen levels. Now with low flow, it is brown, it is turbid, low oxygen, and a whole range of other issues, like at times blue-green algae and also high levels of faecal indicator bacteria, indicating a river that's in woe. There are, however, still some amazing parts of this upper Murrumbidgee. This gorge country, for example, is absolutely spectacular. And there's a whole range of wonderful species and other things that live here. Significant threatened species like the Macquarie perch, nationally listed species. This is a stronghold in New South Wales for this species. This is the only place where you've got a significant, viable, naturally breeding population of this species. We also have populations of Murray cod, the largest temperate freshwater fish in Australia, and also have significant habitat for things like platypus and also other species like the Murray River crayfish, the second largest freshwater crayfish in the world. The largest occurs in Tasmania. The second largest in the world occurs right here. This is really important. And this is also a species that's, that's in decline and can, will soon be 
significantly threatened. For me, this is what I love. This is what I'm all about. As a fish ecologist, this here is Macquarie perch, and this is what I cut my teeth on. So this here fish has had a transmitter inserted into its shoulder so we can track where it goes and better understand the movement ecology and what does this species need in terms of flows to support its life history. And that's where I started my research career. So back to the river, back to the Murrumbidgee. We know historically that flows before Tantandra Dam was fairly large. We had a significant amount of flow coming out of this system. In terms of volume, the, up, the upper Murrumbidgee contributes approximately 300 gigalitres a year of water into the system, into the Murray-Darling Basin system. It's worth noting that the upper Murrumbidgee catchment only represents about 1.3% of the entire Murray-Darling Basin, but depending on the calculations, you can get an order of magnitude larger contribution of the flows to the system. This is a really productive, important part of the food bowl of southern Australia. This is really important. Tantangra Dam we know has had a significant impact and then we see during drought periods we get these extremely low flow periods. This is extremely concerning for both water security from a human critical needs perspective but also the ecology of the system. The aquatic species need water to survive and they're not adapted to living in this sort of system. These are upland species that live in cool, fast-flowing water, not small, slow-flowing, turbid water that you might find out west. Then we come to this point. This is, this is crisis. This is a river in crisis. Late 2019, at the peak of the drought, you can see the haze here. This is the smoke haze from all the fires. This is during black summer. I still find this triggering. This is a river that's pretty much essentially dried up to a series of pools that can't even supply the water for Thawa. They can't even fill their tanks to prepare themselves to fight for fire. Water had to be trucked in by the park service to fill their tanks. This is a really, really sad state. The driver of this is the operating rules of the system. The amount of water that needs to be released under these conditions from Tantangra Dam are really quite small. They only need to supply Cooma upstream and then after that, irrigators take what they, they like to a cease to pump rule, which is very, very low. And unfortunately, during this period, you had a compliance issue. A single irrigator was able to dry up the river. This is currently with the Land Environment Court. Watch the news, something will be coming out soon. Fortunately, you know, there is some action being taken. It takes a long time, but things are happening here. If we look at this, we undertake in the Office of Water, we have a modelling capability, we start to look at these sorts of things and we can ask, what would the flows have been in the system if we didn't have Tantangra, if there was no water abstraction? We can look at it in terms of, if you like, a pre-Whitefella point of view. What did it look like naturally? The blue line here, this is a Murrumbidgee at Mitigang Crossing up near Cooma. The blue line shows during that late 2018 through 2019 period, what would the natural flows have been? And we see... Yes, it would have been depressed due to the drought conditions, but you still would have had natural high late winter and spring flow events. The red line is what actually happened. I'd be bold as to say that this is a river in perpetual drought and this is a man-made drought. That is something to think about. Thinking about water security going forward, the next thing I like to think about is climate change and we've got population growth. So where are we going with this? Some early work that we've been looking at is looking at, well, what will happen under severe climate change scenarios? We're looking at potentially in the order of 30% declines in river inflows to the system. This is a significant challenge. So when thinking about water security, what do we need to do going forward to, to ensure that we have water security for critical human need for our town, but also our environment? And so I put to you today that we need to find solutions that balance those things. We need critical human water supply. We need water security for humans, for, for cultural purposes and for the environment. I think that a revisiting of the operation of Tantangra Dam is a really critical step going forward 
to rebalance and ensure that all these values are, are reasonably acknowledged and get their fair share. Thank you very much. Totally fantastic. Thank you. Okay, Danielle um, will now give us um, the context that she's working in, which is the urban area, and around what she's doing for water security. Danielle is the manager um, of uh, policy and strategy within the Water Services Association of Australia, uh, which focuses focus on shaping the broad water policy landscape. Importantly for today, she was the Liverpool Communities Manager that led Water Services Association of Australia on its um, look into the role of water for the next generation cities. Working with senior representatives from across the water sector to shape and influence national policies and strategies. She has uh, the work she'll share today. She focused on areas of water for health, water for placemaking and water for growth. Her role now includes all the options on the table portfolio, enhancing awareness of Indigenous values for water and leadership of climate change adaptation and mitigation, including support for renewable energy and the emerging circular economy, wherever she is. Okay, hi everybody, lovely to be here. Great. So just in case you want to know who is Water Services Association of Australia or WASA, we are the peak body for the urban water industry in Australia and parts of New Zealand. So whoever gets, whoever you get your water from, if you live here in Canberra, that would be Icon Water. Uh, water utilities like Icon are our member from all around Australia and parts of New Zealand. Uh, and we do a lot of innovation and networking and research and we basically look at national issues that are important in the national and international context and work on those. So I just wanted to talk today about a couple of evolutions that we're seeing in the water industry. So the first one, we're seeing a lot of changes in the climate itself, in the weather patterns that affect us as a water industry. El Nino, I couldn't resist putting something about El Nino up there because I'm sure you've seen the headlines saying that, you know, we're in for another El Nino su summer. Uh, got a graph there showing that, you know, average temperatures over summer are actually getting higher over time, which means a slightly drier climate for us. And I've put down there, it's a little bit hard to see, a graph of what's called declining stream flows over time. And that's the part of evolving weather patterns that's really important to us as a water industry. And that is how much inflows are we seeing to our water storages? How much rain, in a way, are we getting that's flowing into our water storages that we use? And you can see there that's Perth in Western Australia. And as you can see, there's been a pattern that was in place for, you know, close to 100 years, but over time it's just gradually got lesser and lesser and lesser. So that's one evolution. The other evolution that we're seeing is how we deal with that as a water industry because our job is to provide a safe and reliable and secure water supply to our communities, homes, businesses, schools, hospitals and the environment and so on. And the key concept I really want to focus on today is this one of diversification. Uh, and uh, as Maxine said, we've got a couple of uh, reports that we've released called All Options on the Table. And that notion about all options on the table is that in the past when we grew up, we probably relied pretty heavily on one option called surface water, but we're starting to diversify these days. And you can see there's 10 options listed there. Those are sort of the options in the toolkit that water utilities have available to them. And they all make a contribution. That's a really key message. They're all really valuable and they can all really help, but in different ways and it's very location specific. And diversification is the key. And that's about not putting all our eggs in one basket as we face the future. I put a little one there next to water efficiency, and that's just to point out that 
that's the thing that as an industry we always try and do first. Whatever water we've got from wherever we've got it from, let's make sure that we use it really wisely first before we look at whether we need to enhance or augment our water supply. So this is only a few years old and what it shows is that as a country we've typically been pretty reliant on surface water and by surface water I mean rivers and dams, you know, waterways that go across the country. So, and that's really natural because they've been the backbone of our water supply and what that really reflects is a kind of catch and store mentality. You build a dam because you catch the water that's in the river and then it's available to you, it's stored and you can use it as you need to use it. And that's been a great and really valuable thing but of course, what happens if you're in that situation like Perth was, where they're getting less and less water coming into those dams, less and less water in the bucket, and at the same time, like most cities, they've got a growing population, so they're needing to try and make less and less water cover a bigger and bigger need for water. And so you can see across Australia, places have started to diversify a little bit. Groundwater has been one source for the places that have groundwater aquifers. Desal is another one. And recycled water use is another one too that can help you offset that reliance on those surface water sources. Just focusing on Perth because it's a really great case study. As you can see over time, they basically, if you go back to that graph that I showed you, um, Dan talked about this concept of permanent drought. Over in Perth, they sort of have over 100 years of data and they just realised that their water flows were getting lesser and lesser. So they said, we've got to stop talking about this as drought because drought kind of implies that it's going to go back to normal and they realise, well, this is our new normal. We've got less water flowing in to work with. And so they said, we need to diversify. So they've gone from being heavy, heavily reliant on that surface water. They started off with groundwater and that became a big chunk of their water supply. Then you can see they introduced desalination and that now uh, is basically 50% or more than 50% of their water supply. So in Perth, they actually have dams that are filled with desalinated water. They use them to store desal water. And those two little 8% for 2030 is really interesting. So 8%, the one on the right, the blue one, that basically says that in 2030, Perth is only expecting to get 8% of its water supply from stream inflows. So what used to count for 100% of their water supply, they are now expecting to get less than 10% of their supply from that. And the other one, which is the white one, is purified recycled water for drinking. They've got a groundwater replenishment scheme where they purify the water up to beautiful quality. They have an aquifer there. They put it in there and they just doubled that scheme. It's been going for about five years. They just doubled it about a year and a half ago. So it's a great example of that diversification. Lots of eggs, not just one egg in the basket there. So as a water industry, what do we, how do we approach this, this challenge? Well, there's a few different things you look at. One thing is this concept of climate independence. So if we're going to diversify, what we want to do is introduce some other complementary sources that don't rely on rainfall, that are going to be available to us if you're having a drought period when you're having not much rain or no rain. So that's a really important one. And when you're looking at which ones are climate independent, that really pushes you into the territory of something like desalination or recycled water or purified recycled water, which is for drinking. You also need to think about, well, how much water do I get from it? Okay, so something like water efficiency is really great, but look at the tiny size of that dot. It's really helpful, but it's not going to be enough to meet that big water supply gap that a typical city might have. So you really need to be looking at these ones on the left to have enough. You also need to look at what can it be used for. And that's an important concept to think about in terms of recycled water. So people sometimes ask the question, well, why do we have drinking water that's used to flush our toilets, for example? And it is possible to engineer new suburbs, for example, where you have uh, a recycled water supply going into do that but that only makes for a really really small percent of our water like I don't know three percent five percent something like that is what is used for that so it's a lot of cost and a lot of investment to offset something and you can only use it for quite a small amount of supply 
So this is why you'll typically look more at something like the um, seawater desal or maybe purified recycled water for drinking because if you're bringing that water back up to drinking water standard, then you can use it for everything that you can use drinking water for. So it just makes a lot of sense. Uh, and there's a lot of policy support for looking at the full range of water supply options. That little um, um, image down the bottom is from the National Water Initiative and the uh, Urban Water Planning Principles, which say you need to look at all options. Now, what about inland? You can do all of these options inland in a way. Desal is a good one to think about. Can you do desalination inland? Well, you might be lucky enough to have some brackish water that you've got, some groundwater that you can desalinate. Can you use seawater desal? Well, it's not impossible, but you've obviously got to build a pipeline from wherever the ocean is. And the problem is that tends to be really, really expensive to do because water's heavy and it costs a lot to move it around. I'll speed up just quickly. Desalination, um, since the millennium drought, we've actually seen six really big desalination plants built in Australia. So that's a big change in the last 20 years. We've seen an evolution in how we understand recycled water too. It's gone from being a waste product to something we've realised is a really valuable resource and we can use it for irrigation, for industry. We can use it in homes and gardens, particularly in new suburbs, and we can absolutely take it back up to be the same standard as our beautiful drinking water that we enjoy now. And there's a great phrase there that the US use a lot. It's only wastewater if we waste it. Why would we waste it? Uh, and of course, we get so many benefits out of our water. It's not just drinking water. There's also the invisible think ways that we use water. And that's like um, providing biodiversity in natural environments, very important, urban greening and urban cooling, um, having really great green spaces. It's not new. All water is recycled. Picture over there of the natural water cycle. And it just shows that water comes down from clouds, goes through the environment, gets evaporated and goes around in the same cycle over and over again. Man-made recycling is exactly the same, only it just happens a little bit faster because we use technology. And that's why sometimes people say this concept of in London, the water's been through seven sets of kidneys. Uh, it's basically because if you've got a town um, that you, takes the water from the river, treats it up, makes it into a beautiful clean water, then puts it back into the river. And if you've got a, team a town downstream that's doing the same thing, well, that's basically recycling in action because all of those towns up and down a river might be using that water again and again. And that's fine because the water industry takes it to a beautiful standard and makes sure that that water is fit for purpose and, and clean before we put it back into the river. This option of purified recycled water for drinking, that's something that's taken off quite a lot, particularly in America. There's more than 35 cities now around the world who do it. Uh, and, and actually, I think it's something that we'll probably see a lot more of in the world because it just makes a lot of sense to reuse that water that you've already got. Just going to finish there by saying that communities are really key and a really key ingredient in all of this is to make sure that we have really good information and that we talk to our communities and that we take the time to do that. What Making water decisions in a rush, like if you have a really bad drought and you have to make quick decisions, is never the best way to make decisions. So better to start those conversations early on. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, now I'm about to introduce Jason. Um, Jason Alexandra is a Senior Research Fellow at the ANU um, for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, and he's also in the Institute for Water Futures. He works on climate adaptation and adaptive water governance. His research focuses on understanding transformative, adaptive and equitable water governance in urban and rural systems across multiple scales, including Canberra and the Murray-Darling Basin. His research involves collaboration with diverse stakeholders, including governments, farmers, traditional owners and academics. 
Jason has held many senior roles in government, including as a senior executive at the Murray-Darling Basin Commission come authority, where he had responsibility for natural resource management programs, risk assessment and climate R&D. He undertook a thesis on the politics of climate adaptation in Australia's Murray-Darling Basin and he focused on climate adaptive water planning and that PhD. Over to you, please. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Um, I thought I'd start by barbecuing a sacred cow, which is one of my favourite activities. Uh, we've all heard that Australia is the driest inhabited continent and it's used as justification for all sorts of things. But actually, we don't have a shortage of water in Australia. We have more water resources per capita than most countries. We come about uh, 30th out of 180 countries. Um, <clears throat> so we don't have a shortage of water. We have a shortage of good water management and, um, and we need to think clearly about what our options are. In this talk, I'm gonna cover water uh, security from the perspective of climate change, transforming our water systems and the idea of slow water or nature-based solutions. Um, Dan already introduced the importance of the headwater streams, the, the Alps. Uh, the map on the far side shows the dark blue, the tiny dark blue and dark green areas that generate most of the flows in the basin, including the upper Murrumbidgee and the upper Murray. And for 20 something years, uh, our science has told us very clearly that we have a challenge with climate change. Uh, we know about these climate risks, um, we've spent many millions of dollars researching them. Um, but what we need to do is fundamentally reform how we handle them. So the science um, basically says it's prudent to plan for hotter, drier futures, more intense droughts and floods. And we've got just an abundance of evidence for this. Um, I recently reviewed all the documentary evidence in published papers since uh, 2002, um, and it's just, uh, fundamentally clear that we have to plan for significant reductions in runoff and stream flow uh, most of the time. And then occasionally we're going to have these massive uh, flood flows like the events that have hit uh, the Victorian mountains overnight. Now, uh, during the millennium drought, uh, our governments pursued urban water security through bigger or more dams and the desalination plants that you just heard about. Um, but they did so at great expense to every urban water user in Australia, and many would argue unnecessarily, including the Productivity Commission. Now, we don't have to find these heavily engineered and expensive supply side options because we can simply reallocate water through government decree or through water markets. Just to give you an, an example, the desal plant in Victoria, the water coming from it costs 75 times more per unit than capturing water in the dams in the nearby hills. Right, the interstate water market's already being used to secure Canberra's water future. Um, ACTU spent $35 million buying Murrumbidgee irrigation entitlements during the millennium drought. So they bought a few rice farms water entitlements. Um, they temporarily trade this water back to irrigators when they don't need it. And if we look at the diagram of water use in the Murrumbidgee, uh, most of it occurs in New South Wales, most of it for irrigation, and a tiny fraction, the little uh, orangey-pink salmon colour, is used in the ACT. So 
While there's no shortage of water in the the Murray-Darling for urban water, the big issue is a fair share for the upper upper Murrumbidgee, which two of the previous speakers have mentioned. Now let's look at transforming Canberra's water and water relationships. The ACT leads Australia in uh, transforming its energy systems, and I'm going to pose the question or put the proposition that we need to do the same for water. So we need a 21st century approach to managing Canberra's water and water relationships. Uh, We could reconfigure all the urban streams, slow down the water, increase increase the urban amenity, uh, remodel the city's hydrology uh, and develop a celebration of the living water and the cultural water that we're surrounded by. And so I'm suggesting we need uh, to adopt a slow water strategy and think about Canberra becoming a sponge city or a water-sensitive city. So can we do it? I'm sure we can do it, but we've got to start by loving our rivers. Um, And this is the fundamental thing. People do love rivers. Um, They spend a lot of time uh, playing around in them. Um, Even Dan admits it. That's what he likes doing, (laughs) catching fish. Uh, So we need to rethink um, the whole approach to stormwater Stormwater isn't wastewater, it's a resource. We can use it for urban wetlands and for cooling. Uh, We can design these systems to deal with the changing rainfall patterns and we can think about buffering against the rainfall events and future droughts. If we slow down water, um, we get lots of benefits, including um, social, ecological, economic benefits. We enhance the amenity and livability of our cities. Uh, for example, uh, we can get a whole lot of cooling uh, effects in, uh, in summer. Now, what are the slow water challenges? Because uh, if it was such a good idea, why isn't it being adopted already? The big challenge is that we have a kind of dinosaur approach to managing water um, and we need to move into a 21st century approach to it. Um, and this needs citizen engagement, it needs political leadership, it needs good research and education, um, and it needs to be a whole adaptive approach to technical and cultural innovation. So can we think about remodelling Canberra's water as a way of inspiring substantive changes? And here, when we think about urbanism and design, we have to think of cities as much more than just physical systems They have important cultural and symbolic roles and we have to work with those dimensions and Canberra could commit to a far-sighted urban water vision. And if it committed to it, uh, then I think the next thing is it would have to go about implementing it. Again, terrific and thank you very much, Jason. Okay, now our final presenter, and we're very fortunate she's here with us today, is Professor Barbara Norman, Emeritus Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Canberra and an honorary professor at the ANU. Importantly, um, I think for the nation, she is chair of the Urban Policy Forum that advises the Australian government and she's also national chair of the Australian Coastal Society. Barbara is also director of the Urban Climate Change Research Network Oceana Hub and co-chair of Planners for Climate Action. 
She is a global expert in sustainable cities and regions, smart infrastructure, coastal planning, climate change adaptation, and urban and governance. She has a combined professional and academic background as a former national president of the Planning Institute of Australia and an honorary member of the Royal Town Planning Institute. Her recent, um, her recent international research includes, and there's a list here, sustainable pathways for our cities and regions, planning within planetary boundaries, our autonomous cities, our urban future, comment in nature communications, and Apocalypse Now, Australian bushfires and the future of urban settlements. Professor Norman's recent um, book is Urban Planning for Climate Change, a fantastic final uh, speaker who will bring all of this together. It's embarrassing. Um, thank you. Great expectations. So uh, firstly, of course, acknowledge uh, the Ngunnawal people and the, the Ngambri people of this um, Australian capital region, both past and uh, future and emerging, and I will be voting yes, just for the record. I'm an urban planner, so I think spatially, and uh, an urban and regional planner, so I think not just about cities, but I think about regions as well. And um, I'm hoping as not only in Canberra, but as a nation, we do this uh, much more actively in the future. And I'm very fortunate to uh, currently have some roles where Hopefully, um, I can have some input and some influence about that. But coming back to home, um, climate change has been uh, mentioned a few times. Um, I am a contributing or have been a contributing author to the IPCC and a reviewer. Climate change, in my view, should be a mandatory consideration, mandatory consideration in all land use planning across this country and including the Australian capital region. This is not a fast stretch. Um, the Royal Commission into Natural Disasters uh, recommended mandatory, and they don't use that word very lightly, Royal Commissions, mandatory consideration of natural disaster risks in all, all land use planning. And so um, it's really just extending that concept with climate. And of course, water is a key component of that. Um, as was mentioned by Jason, I think just before, um, I was chair of the Climate Change Council, the inaugural chair, for about eight years, and we did have that target of 100% renewable electricity, where Simon Corbell and I stood up very bravely in 2011, I think, said we would get there by 2020, definitely a stretch target at the time. But these targets can actually focus both the private sector, the government sector, and the NGOs. And in this town, the universities came to the party as well which was a fantastic collaboration, and we delivered on that. So I do support the concept that water is the other component. Uh, would add biodiversity as well, but uh, water definitely, we could aspire to that goal. People look at cities in different ways. Uh, it always it, it amuses is probably a trivial word, but it, it interests me. Uh, architects look at uh, buildings, planners look at neighbourhoods and cities. Uh, scientists look at flows of energy, water, and, and biodiversity, and, but it's all those things we need to bring together. So what does all this mean for water? Well, I think, uh, you know, in the five minutes probably I've got left, the most key concept, which we've already heard about today, is water-sensitive urban design. If you think about every single day, whether it's across, across the country or whether it's within Canberra and the region, there are development applications being approved. 
If we can make it a mandatory consideration in that, taking the concept I've just said before on climate risks, then I think, uh, in a sense, the process will take care of itself. Um, I'm a great believer in that, that if you can embed these things as, as a matter of course, which we have done in many ways in the past, uh, with many considerations. I was going to say buildings, but some of our buildings are said to have become more risky in more recent years than, than the past. But uh, regulation's an important part of that. So what a sensitive urban design in Canberra is about a hotter and drier future. I, um, I, I advise, actually, the Singapore government on their big urban research grants, and, and I often talk about Singapore as, a, a, as an exemplar in, in embedding these sorts of concepts in their design. And some people say, well, how is that comparable with, with Canberra? I think it's about learning and sharing of knowledge. In Singapore, um, something like 80% uh, of their water, it's in my, one of my books, but it's at least 80% of their water supply actually comes from Malaysia. And so uh, they're highly dependent on another country for their water supply. And they are now focusing very much in a very dense urban environment, a small uh, area in scale, um, and how to retain every single ounce of water and reuse it as much as they can. And uh, if you've ever worked with the Singapore government, I've got pretty strong confidence they may well achieve this. But we have much to share. But when I've been there, they've said, well, actually, we've been adv being advised by the specialists in water-sensitive urban design from Australia. And so they are drawing on our expertise as well. So there we share our knowledge. Similarly, I was um, in very, you end up in unusual circumstances sometimes, chairing a session as a woman uh, in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia on sustainable cities. And uh, they're talking about all sorts of growth projections in Saudi Arabia, just think about it in terms of Riyadh. Um, but equally, wanting to share with Australia, wanting to share with other nations the expertise and knowledge around water-sensitive urban design from their perspective. So this is a global issue, not just one for Canberra. Uh, we've mentioned community engagement. Um, my understanding is Sydney is redrawing their, their water um, catchment uh, um, uh, uh, maps uh, with the uh, import of First Nations knowledge, knowing that for far too long we've had a kind of warped perspective of channeling our water into concrete channels, as we all know, and as fast as possible and getting it out of those suburbs and straight out into the ocean often. And so um, I think that's a really positive thing that's happening. And I really hope that uh, anything we do in the Australian capital region uh, is looking at those um, points. And Maxine really uh, reinforced that. And as chair and the person who has influence there, I'm really delighted with that. I don't think we've mentioned much about flood risk in urban areas, as I just hear the rain coming down. I live in Braddon, and I am still constantly amazed just walking the streets. It only needs something. You have a look tomorrow, or even tonight, there'll be flooding on the footpaths in Braddon. And I'm thinking, what are we doing? Now, this is new development. I was one of the early residents in Braddon in 2014, so, you know, nine years ago. And all, that, all the other developments have <laughs> grown up around where I live. Uh, but uh, um, it seems that uh, we've failed in that respect. If you just objectively look at what's happening on the ground, it's basically a concrete landscape. And um, I'm sure I'll get in trouble for saying that, but 
that doesn't matter. It's never worried me. But it's uh, it's it's that we need to be um, uh, puncturing holes in those concrete landscapes as much as we can. And there's fabulous work around the place. Even in Los Angeles, they're becoming very good at these puncturing pockets into their urban uh, concreted landscapes, creating urban parks, creating uh, water capture, caption, capture, you'll know, Jason, a better word for that, but uh, sort of little dams, if you like, to capture urban water, which is then used to uh, be recycled to uh, feed all the landscape, the urban landscape in that neighbourhood. So we can do really smart things if we decide, and that's the issue. Um, bringing this together, uh, what's planning? What can planning do? Well, uh, for those who've been involved, and I forgive you if you haven't, but ACT has been just through a very significant uh, planning reform process. And uh, really, I think it did try and engage a lot of people in that process. And certainly, um, I was part of that consultation anyway. I didn't have any power to make decisions in that particular realm, but certainly our input was uh, uh, listened to. Uh, but I do still think there's a gap between the, and I've just been reading, the natural natural landscape yeah, strategy, right? All the natural landscapes of uh, ACT and the ceramic, yeah. And the ACT planning strategy, which is really around predominantly the private land. Well, nature doesn't work that way, does it? You know? uh, so if you think, uh, even if you think about how we not only capture water, but how, how nature, even if you think of biodiversity, you know, the birds that fly from the top of Mount Ainsley through the urban landscape to the top of uh, Black Mountain, they're not interested in the private and public boundaries, and neither is water. And so I think that the next step for the ACT is bringing these different strategies together into a holistic sustainable development strategy. And just to finish, as I know my time is now, uh, I have a, a very long time been an advocate for an Australian Capital Region Sustainable Development Strategy that brings in the surrounding councils. I keep saying it, I've been involved at least two. I've been a, a senior planner for the Southeast Region years ago in the 90s. I've been director of planning in the ACT later in the 90s, two of those exercises. Um, trouble is, every time an ACT government changes or a New South Wales government changes, it kind of, you know, it, it falters. But I do have a feeling that uh, the leaders today understand that if we don't work together, we're not going to resolve these problems and the community will speak up. Thank you for listening. While my friends are coming up, our friends collectively, give them another clap. They were all terrific, um, incredibly inspiring um, and should give us energy to go to Minister Rattenbury, I think, um, who's currently Minister for Water, to say let's do the same for water that you did for um, renewable energy and um, the em emission reduction. Okay. I, we've got a roaming mic and um, there are some questions I already have put to me to ask. I'm going to ask Barbara. She, she's given us her, her view uh, locally while one, while one of you puts your hand up for another question. Barbara, one of the online questions is, what can a national urban policy do to address the issues raised today? So it's actually elevating it from just that regional level. Sure, sure. Thank you. I will uh, necessarily speak in more general principles because the work right now is uh, confidential and 
I will be in a lot of trouble if I talk about that. But uh, uh, let me reassure you, it is going out into the public domain in the not too distant future. So um, uh, just keep an eye out for that. Um, we are one of the few OECD countries in the, that do not have a national urban policy or national spatial planning policy or some idea of how we're going to manage urban growth in the future. Some, you know, we're going to have big cities, regional cities, some sort of spatial distribution. Um, different governments are more ambitious about this and others get a bit nervous, but most countries, have, Indonesia does. I mean, our neighbours do as well. Um, so now maybe we've got away with it. I'll come to the, answer the question very quickly, but maybe we've got away with it to date growing to, after a long time, to now nearly 26 million. Uh, we're expected to grow to 24, 20, uh, to 40 million by, it's just been pushed out actually, some people could correct me, I think it's to 2065 now. So you might be hearing about immigration and population, but actually our longer term projections have, have actually gone down. Um, why is this important? Because it brings things together, it connects the dots. There is nothing else in the national government that I can think of that can, in a spatial context, bring those different dimensions together. The climate strategy, the housing strategy, the transport strategy, the water strategy, the, the, the livability, um, uh, uh, what are they called, um, the uh, wellbeing index of treasury together. Uh, so I think that's the opportunity. And so that's probably how I'd like to express it at this very early stage. We've only had two meetings at our national committee, so it, it is an early stage. But um, I think, uh, you know, I different country, and people have heard me refer to the Scottish, if you want to have a look at a good example. Some of you probably come from Scottish heritage, like my mother, who's a McGregor. Um, I met with a chief planner in Scotland only in July. Um, their national spatial plan, it's called National Planning Framework Number 4, agreed to by Parliament not just the government. It's one of the strongest statements I've read anywhere in the world in terms of commitment to sustainability, commitment to the environment, commitment to social justice, uh, productivity, uh, and the, implementing the SDGs. And uh, actually, it was a very good example, let me just finish, of, of um, it's always pays to be brave if you're developing these things because when I met with the uh, chief planner and those involved, they said, we didn't actually think Parliament would agree to that, <laughs> but they did. And they're very, very, it's great credit to them. So then had subsequently a discussion with the chief planner of the UK. They also have a national policy. They've had a national policy for a very long time. And so what I, I guess is what I'm saying is it's quite normal to have it. It's a new thing for this country. Whitlam had a go. Uh, Keating Brian Howe had a go. Um, our current prime minister had a go. Um, but it's been very hard to sustain it. But I think a bit like ending my talk, I don't think we can get away with not having one uh, anymore. So It amazes me when I see whole new suburbs being built within a metre of sea level. Uh, we, know, we know that we're going to get bigger storms. We know we're going to get sea level rise. It's locked in. And allowing people to commit their life savings to brand new houses right on the edge of those estuaries or coastlines. It's madness. And the way this country works is the Commonwealth keeps bailing out those bad decisions. And so if there's any justification for a national approach, it's to 
at least draw some lines around where we don't make the worst possible decisions and then go in to fix up the problems after they happen. Um, I was just going to say that national urban policy sounds really interesting. Uh, there is the, the current government committed to renew the national water initiative, so that's focusing on the national on the water issue specifically. And I think that really is exciting. And to your question of what's the value of it, there is value of it because for water issues, um, they're often the jurisdiction of state governments constitutionally, but there's a lot of value in bringing the state and territory governments together to look at how they can learn from each other and progress. And I do think that you, by having those forums like national initiatives or national policies, you do generally enable progress forwards. Uh, thanks, Maxine, and thanks to each of the panellists for your presentations. David Flannery is my name. Dan, uh, you spoke uh, at some in some detail about the problems with the Tantangra Dam and inflows into the Murrumbidgee system. Um, I also therefore think back to uh, a week I had away recently down at Marlow on the, um, the East Gippsland Victorian coast between Orbost and Lakes Entrance, for those of you who've not heard of it before. Um, it's where the Snowy River hits the coast and talking to people down there, apparently uh, the river mouth has been closed for most of the last decade. It was opened a couple of times in some storm events in 2019, they say, but it's closed at the moment. So clearly... Um, Yukonbean Dam is causing the same sorts of problems with lack of inflow in, into that river system. Um, so I then cast forward to thinking about uh, Snowy 2.0, which is happening right now, uh, all very secretively. It's very hard to find out what's actually going on up there. Um, do any of the panel know whether Snowy 2.0 will cause similar sort of or compounding impacts on the inflow to the... To the, to the system on the other side of the Murrumbidgee where it's sending off the water? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question. I think um, certainly in the upper Murrumbidgee context, I look to the Snowy, the Snowy, the man from Snowy River, quite iconic. And certainly in terms of recovery of water from the Snowy Hydro Scheme, the Snowy River gets back about 23%, I think, of its flows. So we're talking the upper Murrumbidgee currently losing 90 to 95%. The Snowy Scheme is through Jindabyne that cuts the Snowy River, um, has the same effect. They've got back about 23-odd percent. And it's interesting you're saying that the river mouth is not open. I, I don't fully know the details in terms of what was the objective to be met for the Snowy Scheme in terms of recovery of that water for the Snowy River. Was that originally the objective? I think in the upper Murrumbidgee context, we're still working through in terms of what's the objective to be achieved from a water recovery perspective. I think we are seeing at the moment we've got significant issues with erosion in the catchment. We have significant input of sediment into the river channels that's effectively creating aquatic deserts where you can't find significant species like fish, platypus, crayfish, for example. So in terms of setting the objective, in terms of from an environmental perspective anyway, what's the ecological outcome we're trying to get? We're certainly looking at that sort of thing. In terms of Snowy Hydro 2, as a scientist, as an ecologist, I think of it, if you can make a little bit of water work harder by going around and spinning the turbines, the opportunity to rebalance how much water you need for electricity generation versus how much you could return for other purposes, be it cultural or environmental or other social agricultural aspects, that could be then revisited. At the moment, the scheme kind of works. Water gets released once, it passes through all the turbines and then it goes out into the irrigation areas. With the pumped hydro scheme, the idea is you can make water go around and reuse it again and again and again. 
Now, that doesn't mean it becomes a completely closed system. I don't think that would be how it would operate. But I think the opportunity needs to be brought there. And I agree in terms of make this a public conversation around identifying, well, what are the opportunities that Snowy Hydro 2 gives? And where is that logical rebalancing of what can be done with a pumped hydro scheme and then achieving the maximum range of benefits that can be achieved from a pumped hydro scheme, which is a significant investment into the Snowy Hydro scheme and one of the biggest changes since it was developed. Whole energy economics have, has changed dramatically since Snowy One was built, partly to do with the abundance of solar energy. So, you know, they used to be run those schemes with uh, use the hydro and then pump the water back up from coal-fired power stations overnight. In the future, we're going to do a lot of pumping in the day when there's virtually that they'd be begging for the energy to be used because there's a surplus. This The, the tension that we're talking about between uh, environmental flows, hydroelectricity and irrigation demand or and, if you like, urban demand, it's a global phenomenon. You can, you can read about it in almost every continent, every country. So we shouldn't be thinking that we have to solve all these problems on our lonesome down in southeastern Australia. Um, thinking about how to run rivers so we get if you like, optimal benefits for a whole range of different values. Uh, that's a massive challenge. I don't like the idea that we can just put them into some great big calculator and work it out in a sort of technical fashion. It's always going to have a political and social dimension to it, um, but it shouldn't be a set-and-forget exercise. That So we've, we've embedded a whole lot of rules that are now invisible in how we run these big rivers, who gets the water, who has priority, et cetera, and we need to do it, we need to open it up as a big uh, social debate and say, what is it we value about them? And can we, like the way water law works in Australia, governments have the right to reallocate water. It doesn't belong to any individual party. They only have a right to use it for a given period of time. And it goes back to the brilliance of Alfred Deakin in something like 1886, when he said all water should belong to the state and the state should control how it's used. Not in those words, but with that effect. Hi, thank you. Annie Kentwell. Um, that comes between East Far East Gippsland, Can River, so I know Marlow and Almost and, um, and Canberra. Um, Jason, it was possibly something, and thank you for that because absolutely fantastic and I think a lot of people take water so much for granted and when you're living out in the country, you certainly, in tank water, you certainly don't take that for granted. So um, one of the things, um, Jason, when I was um, listening to you, and I guess I just wrote it quickly, is how long do you think it would take for the, um, the region, let's say, um, to become what you say is a sustainable district or sustainable region if all parties come to the table um, or to try and focus on an ecological outcome? And I guess that's a fairly rhetoric question, but um, then I looked at Daniel and uh, Danielle and said, well, she's a peak, you know, what's your policies? Um, you've got the peak body for Water Services Australia. And then you were talking about the social debate um, Jason and then, of course, Barb, talking about the national policy. But it really is um, an urgent, urgent emergency thing that we need to come to the table and do this. And are most organisations or, you know, to do with water really thinking that way? Or are they just, is it business as usual? Uh, great question. Um, first of all, the time frame. I mean, I, I would sort of hazard a guess. I thought the 
energy commitment was very, very brave to uh, uh, do it in a decade um, and they were able to prove that it was possible. I would suspect when we're talking about digging up all the concrete and remodeling our streams and so on, you know, it could easily be done in 20 or 30 years. Um, think of the duplication of the highway between Sydney and Brisbane. I don't know how many hundreds of billions or tens of billions it's cost. It's just about complete. It's taken about 20 years, huge engineering project. But once government's committed to it and got it going, you know, there's no end of big yellow machines and people who can make things happen. Um, so that's why I ended with this idea of, you know, if, if the commitment is to inspiring substantive change, you've got to have the vision, you've got to have the commitment to it. Second part of your question, how, how good are our existing agencies? Uh, my view is that we have a, a, our public sector has been infected by a terrible disease where it's easy not to, easier not to make decisions because you can't be held accountable for something going wrong than it is to make a brave commitment to, yeah, to do something very differently. So we have to shift to some kind of way, instead of thinking of it in terms of compliance and incremental change, how do we enable brave, big, transformative change and make it safe for people to make small errors as they're going and learn from it rather than blow our reputation. Uh, so take an experimental learn by doing approach. And I was saying just before, I would love to be given the chance to have a big yellow machine to dig up some of the streams around Canberra. Forget about having a design approach, just have a rough cartoon sketch, have a few people directing, knock the concrete up, build leaky weirs, remodel the stream and then and then monitor it over time to see how the stream restores itself. So to your question, is it business as usual? No. Um, so water, the water industry plans constantly and, and water providers, wherever they are, they plan constantly and it's a constant cycle that happens. And basically, as soon as you finish one water plan, it's then time to start you know, on the next water plan. And there's you know, so many inputs that go into that process and so many details. It's very long lasting. Um, but I really think you have seen some pretty seismic changes in the way we do supply water, like, you know, some of the stuff in my slides. Um, something that can sometimes hasten that is something like a drought, for example. You know, a drought can sort of push big decisions and it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because drought can sometimes give you the burning platform that helps you do things a little bit differently. And if you look at the example of the Millennium Drought, that significantly changed the way that capital cities provide water to their communities that led to the introduction of some more recycling and some more desalination plants. Um, you know, it's, it's not ideal in a way because, as, we've, as we said, you know, having to do things quickly can also limit your options in some ways. But I, I definitely think that um, overall, nationally, the way that we are approaching it is, is quite different to the way it used to be. And what's really important is that we bring those communities along on that journey with us because something that, you know, just to take desalination as an example, that probably seem quite radical at a certain point in time. Whereas if you get to a point where you see that happening around you, that starts to be something that people kind of, you know, can see a bit more sense in and they feel a bit more comfortable with it. And the desalination plants have actually ended up being quite useful for a range of different uh, weather events, not just droughts, but things like floods and bushfires and so on, and they play a really valuable role. Um, so I think it's really helpful if we can take communities on the journey so that something that might seem like a new idea actually seems a bit more familiar. Thank you. This is um, particularly relevant to Daniel, but it's relevant to everybody else as well. 
there's a, in my eyes, there's a fundamental difference between the water problems related to coastal towns and water problems related to inland towns. Um, in the coast, fundamentally, if you put your desalination plant in, you can get what you want. It costs, but you can do it. Take Canberra. If we really needed to put up a, 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 a recycling plant on our sewage, for example, um, or cleaning up groundwater for drinking purposes, we would be landing up with a whole lot of salt. It's the same problem with the people taking um, water out of coal seams for the coal seam gas production. The water's not suitable for anything. It's not suitable to go into the river. You have to desalinate it. In, in, in the inland situation, to get significant inputs of water, in, of drinking water quality or even um, environmental quality, out of the environment, it has to be desalinated. What do we do with the salt? You know, you could pump any amount of water out of the groundwater in the Murray-Darling Basin. It's full of salt. What do we do with it? Well, I was going to say that that's great. You're tuned in because one of the issues that the water industry is, is sort of grappling with is this question of brine management, what's called brine management. A desalination plant has a waste stream. And if you're near the coast, you can typically put it back in the ocean, as you say. And look, that is an ongoing challenge around the world places working out how they can use that and as I said the options that are available to any location are very much location specific and it depends on things like the topography the geography and things like that and it does depend on things like salinity those can all absolutely have an impact so some places that might start by looking at a page and say right well I've got 10 options available to me might sort of figure out that not all of those options are going to be suitable and that's part of the water planning process is there a magic solution to the brine to the brine problem well that's something that keeps evolving and there are different places around the world looking at that and they're looking at brine recovery and things like can you um, extract certain types of nutrients from the brine and magnesium and things like that that make it different different um, but look it is an ongoing challenge and I don't have a ready answer to give to you because and if you have one give it to me <laughs> uh, following on from the previous question relating closely to that uh, it seems to me very little uh, the presentations uh, referenced uh, recycling of water. And, and perhaps that's not surprising given that 90%, 95% of urban Australia lives on the coast. And perhaps then when we're looking at alternative supplies to surface water, the most obvious source becomes desalination. Uh, in, a, in, in Canberra, we're, we're, um, we're not in that position we, we, we have to have a quite different strategy here. And it seems to me recycling is something that we should look at more closely. Um, the reality is all our wastewater here is recycled. It's just that we don't have to do it. Everybody downstream does it. Every time we flush the toilet here, the water goes back into the Murrumbidgee. When we have a shower, the same thing. And I wonder if we could perhaps set an example by in Canberra by actually embracing recycling um, rather than, you know, leaving it to people in Wagga, uh, ultimately even in Adelaide, where they get our water. Thank you. Yeah, look, 
you know, I absolutely think that's the case. And that's why I'd sort of run out of time a little bit. I got excited. Um, but, you know, when I was talking about that concept of love, the London and the seven sets of kidneys, that's sets of kidneys. That's absolutely that idea that, that recycling is absolutely part of the, the urban water cycle, but it often goes from one, one town to another. So, look, I absolutely think it's, it's great if communities are open to those ideas. And, again, it's really just um, it's about education. Like um, when we were in school, my son's in primary school and he's learning about the water cycle right now and he's kind of learning about these concepts but I think as adults you can kind of forget about those things and you know we live in a world where you flush the toilet and it goes away and you don't really think about it much anymore um, and I think you know there's a job for all of us governments industry and so on to help educate communities about the fact that this is what happens with water uh, and I also think as water utilities sometimes we um, we talk about the fact that our water comes from a pristine catchment well, you know, all water comes from the environment and all natural products have impurities that we that we treat to, to bring them to the level that we need to use them. And I think if we can continue to educate our communities about those facts, it will help them be open towards whatever are the new, the, the right options that might be appropriate for a particular location. Okay, we're right at the end. And what I'm going to do, um, unless there's an absolute burning question out there or a comment, no, I'm going to ask each panel member if uh, they don't have to, but if there's one final comment they'd like to give. Um, and can I start with you, Dan? Yeah, I think where I sit within ASD government, I think it's, a, it's an interesting, challenging space. And I love to hear the, the conversation that's coming from here in terms of the exploring the options going forward. I think for me, what I take from this is that the opportunities around water sense of urban design and, and water diversification are something that I will go away and I think about more in terms of from a technical perspective. Um, certainly for me, I guess where I sit within environment is I think about the environmental um, impacts that are coming with climate change. Um, I think for me it is going to be finding that balance in terms of how can we maintain the environmental and the ecological integrity of our systems while you know, with climate change, those reduced inflows, um, those sorts of things are going to play out. The, the prospect that streams that are currently permanent flowing systems may become ephemeral systems. And how do we, how do we deal with those challenges? I think um, it's easy to look at in terms of doom and gloom, but the, the flip side of that is um, where we have regulated systems is that we actually have a phenomenal degree of control. Um, and that the reality from an environmental perspective is that our regulated systems may actually become a, a position of strength and that those are the places where ecological resilience might actually persist, where the unregulated systems may really suffer from the impacts of climate change. And I think that's a, a for environmentalists where we think about the impacts of dams and river regulation as being negative and, and a bad thing, but actually at some point those are probably going to become the positive things to look at and a whole range of opportunities are going to, going to come out of that. And I guess in terms of those issues that I raised today, this final slide I didn't have there, go and Google the Forgotten River. Um, find the web page there. It's got a real amazing wealth of resource that will, that will showcase the challenges for the Murrumbidgee River that is right here in our backyard and yet we so easily forget it. And I like that point. We flush the toilet, we forget about it. Our rivers are right next door to us and yet we, we often forget about them and we're not really engaged with them. And I think it's really important to reconnect with our waterways, be it our urban waterways or something as the, the once mighty Murrumbidgee River and we can make it mighty again. Thank you, Kenya. Uh, thank you. Uh, I've talked a little bit about the importance of um, working with communities and talking to communities. I guess to, to specifically address that, I would say that it's really helpful for us all to be conscious of the things that we mentally rely on. We turn back to what we knew in our childhood as being, you know, the things that will keep us safe forever. 
but lots of things that we did in our childhood are changing. You know, the kids that my, the cars that my kids learn, learn to drive on will be very different to the car that I learned to, to drive on and that my parents learned to drive on. And lots of, you know, the way we get our energy, that's going to be so different for the kids of Canberra than it was 20 years ago. So I think we just have to remember that we've all been open to new, new things and we've been able to achieve really great things and it's great to spread that openness to, to new solutions to our networks as well. I'd just like to say I think that there's a chance to really uh, like push this into a space where we're talking about inspiring really positive change. Um, and as I said, if you use the energy example, the ACT can be the leading city in it or the leading jurisdiction in Australia um, and really push it to uh, you know a very different way of having water relationships. I just think... Um... Well, firstly, a more regional approach. I say this all the time, so if you're bored with me saying it, what do they say? If you've said it 50 times, somebody might start to listen. But a more regional approach, so Australian capital region in our context, um, we need a spatial plan that brings these different elements together. Uh, but I think the more important point uh, is bringing uh, the natural resource management side and the built environment side together. Um, we can't have a natural resources strategy and an ACT land use plan not speaking to each other. Well, ACT uh, planning strategy, I think, does have some water sensitive urban design, but not enough to suit your purposes. And that's just one example. So I think uh, that would be my, uh, that's my strongest desire that uh, working with nature in whatever we do and by bringing those two elements together. Would you please give our panel a big round of thanks? And I'd also like to thank Nicole, um, Director of the Henry Halloran Trust, and Greta. Could you put your hand up, Greta? Greta's one of those backroom people who've done so much work, and Nicole's done so much, but you know who she is. I believe there's Melanie Morris, Morrison and Linda Wang, also in your team, who've done that background work. So how about thanking them for making today possible? Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.